Before we get into the show and any possible advertising, yeah, never had that before, we'd like to present you with a random fact of the day, because, you know, we could all do a little bit better with a fact. So did you know that the National Institutes of Health's first mycologist, a person who studies mushrooms, fungi, and all that stuff, Chester W. Emmons, demonstrated that fungal infections were common and widespread? Yep. That gunky stuff between your toes, this guy says it's everywhere. And he would be right. Anyway, on with the rest of it. Good day, Brigade! We're back. As always, I'm your host, Bobby, and this week we've got an interesting episode for you. It's our Ideology of the Month series. This episode is Marxism. Yep, fun little topic here. Marxism is a communist ideology that, for most people, is the defining communist ideology. There are three major ones for a lot of people. Four, depending on who you're talking to. Communism gets really interesting, actually. Most people see it as one central idea, but in reality, it's kind of like the general overarching concept of capitalism. There are a million and a half subcategories, each one different, each one unique, some of which seem like they're almost exactly the same sometimes. Some of them are like, oh my god, how are these two related? And today, we're covering Marxism, because for most people, that's the defining central one that really started the whole thing. Now, to start it off, a little history on Karl Marx, the man with probably one of the most epic beards in history. Holy crap. Seriously. If you don't know what this man looks like, just, just look him up for a second. Seriously. We'll, we'll, we'll wait for you. Yeah, no, that beard is crazy, right? Anyways, Karl Marx was a German philosopher, economist, a bunch of things, really. Honestly. He was born in Trier, Germany, a really nice small, a nice city, who studied law and philosophy at university. I always find it weird. That seems to be a very European thing, is to say university. Americans typically say college. Sorry, this is a wild tangent. I, I just always find that odd, personally. Anyways, it's due to his political publications that eventually Marx became stateless and lived in exile with his wife and children in London. For quite a while, actually. He developed his thought in collaboration with Frederick Engels, which is where we eventually got the Communist Manifesto, and the three-volume, never-finished Das Kapital. My friend Jacob actually makes a, fun makes a statement that they have never finished Das Kapital. I have a terrible retort to that. Neither did Marx. Well anyways, Marx's theories largely derive from concepts of class conflict, the sociological concept of conflict theory in general, and a lot of Hegelian origins. In fact, historically before, being come, before developing Marxism and becoming the defining ideology towards what many would see as communism, he was very big into Hegel's ideas. Like, big time. The, reading some of his works, it's 
amazing how much he derives from it. He took a critical approach known as historical materialism to develop his class conflict theory. The class conflict theory basically is, in the capitalist mode of production, it manifests itself a conflict between the ruling classes, which you all probably have heard, the bourgeoisie, so bourgeois, and they control the means of production. Well, the working classes, as you all probably have heard as the proletariat, and they enable their means by selling their labor power in return for wages. This is what he saw as the capitalist mode of production, and he inherently saw it as a conflict. Which, mm, arguably yes. In a way, you could see it as a conflict, especially when you take into the natural competence competitive nature of capitalism. Sorry, stumbled over my words a little bit there. Marx predicted that capitalism would produce an internal tension like socioeconomic systems previous in that it would lead to its own self-destruction and replaced by a new system known as the socialist mode of production. For Marx, many of these class antagonisms were under capitalism owing in part to its instability and crisis-prone nature which, it, yeah, <laughs> would eventuate to the working class's development of class consciousness, leading to their conquest of the political power and eventually the establishment of a classless communist society constituted by a free association of producers. It's an interesting thought. Marx actively pressed for its implementation and argued that the working class should carry out an organized proletarian revolutionary action to topple capitalism and bring about socio economic emancipation. So that was basically the very base brass tacks of where he started on that. And it's important to note that he never fully finished fleshing out his ideas, and quite frankly, there is a lot. Like, we got a whole page here we're still gotta cover, even. Like, that was just an introduction to who Marx is. When you want to get into knowing what Marxism is, it's a very, very different thing entirely. Because while it was developed and started by Marx, even after his death, development of the ideas continued, particularly through philosophers like Rosa Luxemburg, and you may know him as Vladimir Lenin. Yes, before Leninism, he, Lenin was very much a Marxist. So was Trotsky, and so were St was Stalin. It wasn't until much later that they all started developing their own independent ideas. In fact, there's a lot of interesting history between all of these people. You all know Vladimir Lenin did eventually lead a Red Revolution that did take over Russia and create the Soviet Union. You know that Trotsky and Stalin had a power struggle. Trotsky eventually went to Mexico and Stalin had him executed, got killed in the back of the head with an ice pick. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry, but yeah, that's what happened to Trotsky. He got exiled to Mexico, and Stalin paid an assassin to kill him with an ice pick. I don't know if the ice pick was necessarily specific to Stalin's orders, but it's kind of fun to think that Stalin was saying, yeah, get him with an ice pick. Like that Simpsons joke where Bart keeps prank calling the uh, most and Moe always just threatens him by carving his name, name in the back of his head with an ice pick. Maybe that's what Stalin did. 
Man, Trotsky, that was a horrible way to die. Anyways, you may not know who Rosa Luxemburg is, though, so much, because she's not as commonly talked about. However, she has recently gained more popularity in years because her ideas have largely been brought forward again and have been largely well-received. Basically, Rosa Luxemburg was also a German philosopher who was very into Marxism. She studied it and even developed her own little substrain of it, which many people associate with Luxemburgism, and eventually wrote the work Reformer Revolution. This was an interesting work. Reformer Revolution argued that reform in Reform and things like that were basically impossible to bring about a socialist economy. You can't reform or legislate socialism through a capitalist system, basically, was the idea. It just doesn't work. So, we're going to get into the notes because I don't know how to basically introduce this other than my friend who is a Marxist. Jacob has helped with a lot of this because they were unable to actually come in and speak themselves. So here's a little bit of the notes. The most fundamental ideas in Marxism are class, which is on a basic level based on your legal relationship to the tools you use to make a living. The fact that the owning class by necessity has to pay workers less the amount that left after, the amount of money received for the thing minus the amount spent on materials machine maintenance and whatnot, you know, basically the cost of doing business effectively, divided by the number of workers. Otherwise, they don't get the profit and wealth that they gain. Workers generally don't have any way to afford the stuff that they need to live without selling their labor because basically it's the only thing that makes value that they own. If you don't have capital, you can't exactly invest. If you don't have the means of production, you can't exactly build. So what you do is sell your labor. I'm sure most of you are aware of that. And in the capitalist mode system, this is called the labor market. The owners of the means to make things they want to as much, get as much as it's possible in their own pockets and have the ability to pay the workers very little because there will almost always be another person who can do that job if the worker gets too uppity, so to speak. People want to pay as little for things as possible, which forces the owning class to sell things for less and reduces the amount of money they make for doing so. That leads to the expansion of market markets to reduce the consequences of lost profit margins. This expansion caused colonialism and a million other bad things. Once the market for most things basically got as expanded as possible, the capitalists were forced into other production, and as that becomes less viable, new things are made into commodities. See social media, the commodification of queer identity, and so on. Okay, yeah, so I'm sure we all see examples of this all the time. I mean, last month alone, you see how many people changed their logos to a pride logo of some kind. How many of these people genuinely, truly dedicate themselves to LGBTQ plus rights and queer identity and all that? Most of them, probably nine times out of ten through most of the year, probably show no sort of concern whatsoever. And I think we all know this. In fact, we've seen many instances of this happening much more recently. However, a lot of companies seem to be more pressured into a more legitimizing sort of thing. Though, 
it's important to note, it still clearly is about obtaining profit. And that's basically the central goal behind it. And it's not like this happens purely with more left-wing or liberal causes, as many people would say in America. In fact, this happens very heavily with right-wing causes as well. In fact, I'm sure you're all familiar with a lot of more right-wing stuff that people will buy like crazy that seems like propagandist, but is actually the commodification of these ideas. I mean, I don't remember the name of the company, I think... Let me check it out. But there's one company in particular I keep seeing shirts for time and again. Yes, Grunt Style. I'm sure you've probably seen a lot of those shirts around on a lot of people, particularly people who believe in a more right-wing approach, particularly people who identify as Republicans. This is one of the major commodification aspects. This is like textbook commodification of ideas and politics and things like that. Basically, what they're doing here is taking your ideas, slapping it on a shirt, and selling it on back to you. Now, this is basically what they're using to try to push you forward into continuing support for these various companies. It's like, oh, they believe in my ideas. No, they're commodifying your ideas. And then in turn, using it to try to get as low a price as possible by exploiting the workers, continuing the cycle over again. It's kind of like they're in it for themselves, you would say. Huh. Would that mean the central idea of capitalism is individualism? Yes, yes it would. But individualism taken to such an extreme that it's insane. We're not talking like just, oh, I've got to look out for myself every once in a while. No, we're talking, I've got to make sure I'm number one at everything. That's the crazy level of individualism we're talking. Anyways, continuing back down the notes, we kind of got off on a tangent there. And again, if you are a true Marxist and I have made any sort of a mess of your ideas, I apologize sincerely because, you know, I I'm not... 100% accurate all the time, and I understand this. And if there are any mistakes or corrections you'd like to point out, please do feel free to do so in commenting. Anyways, moving back on. Obviously, the workers wouldn't want to be paid as little as possible and would, not, and would want to not see the consequences of that shit destroy, like, everything, so that they try to use the political machine. But, owning the, cla but the owning class just kind of, you know bought the political class, or is the political class, depending on the time and decade, or, you know, the individual political system, because, my god, we literally had a man who used his business credentials to try to, to actually gain the presidency. We have multiple businessmen almost always running for president. Remember Michael Bloomberg? That guy was a thing. Kind of sounds like Regis Philbin. Sorry. My terrible Bloomberg impression there. So, they can't stop the electoralism, stop it using electoralism. So, this is where the whole reformer revolution comes back in. Reform doesn't work in this case. So, basically, they have to go into a revolution to base, fix what they can't fix legally. In other words, the whole idea behind the violent revolution is, uh, 
no other option idea. It's not necessarily that anyone's advocating for violence, it's more perceived that there isn't any other choice. And this is probably the idea about communism people know the most. Why? Well, do I really have to explain it? Violent revolution of any advocation of any kind tends to catch people's attention. But it's important to note, it's a matter of perceiving a no way out scenario as compared to what is commonly misattributed to someone being, oh, just radical extremism. For a lot of Marxists, that's technically yes and technically no. And when it comes to the whole violent revolution thing, in many cultures and societies, this tends to be the case, is it's a perceived no way out. Now this is not to advocate for anything like that at all. Personally, I'm an advocate of the idea of revolution of thought, in which thought is what truly, is what truly leads to revolution, not action. But that, that, that's a whole much more complicated idea we can get into later down in the series. In fact, we could probably cover that in a Friday proposal or something. Anywho, the idea basically is when people turn to violent revolution as a means, they perceive it as a no other option scenario. Many people, if they can avoid it, would rather not hit conflict. Conflict's destructive. Conflict's detrimental, it's counterproductive, it doesn't help at all, and everyone is aware of that, which is why conflict tends to be more of a last resort motive. When you have people actively advocating for conflict as a first means, then you've got a problem. Those are the people you should be very worried about. In the no way out scenario, that's a perception. But again, it should also be noted that there are many, 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 many other ideas within the whole ideas of communism and even within Marxism that don't go straight to the violent revolution part. In fact, the way Marx tends to outline it is violence is more of an out is more of a consequence and outcome of the revolution rather than the source. It's an interesting thing to note on that. It's really fascinating. And in fact, American society gives such a large false narrative of the general idea of communism in general, it's really no surprise most people in America don't know about it very well. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a great idea or a bad idea, in fact we're not advocating or, di or disavowing any ideas on this series. Except for, you know, the obviously horrible stuff like genocide. Don't commit genocide! My god, why does that have to be said? Anywho. As we continue this series, I hope we kind of continue to help understand that, yeah, a lot of ideas have a lot of origins and not everything is automatically horrid. In fact, another idea that communist ideology likes to use is the general strike. What is the general strike, you might ask? It's basically when the working class says, fuck it, we're not doing shit. 
all production stops, the economy of a nation halts, and the nation needs to do something quick. Because, oh crap, our economy just stopped. We're not producing anymore. We're not servicing anymore. We're not gaining anymore. Now, the general strike is generally advocated for before the revolution. So that way you can weaken it weaken the ruling class's overall power. That's typically, at least I think, what's seen as the idea. I could be wrong there. Keep that in mind, I may not be right on all of this 100%. I've just done the best research that I can. But it's also not the only idea. And Marxism and communism as a whole tends to have a whole interesting broad category and all that behind it. And that's what we're going to continue to go on in this series and do. In fact, next month we're probably going to pick a more capitalist ideology because, well, hey, that sounds fun. Why not? We're not going to just stay on the left. We need to go out into right field every once in a while to catch those fly balls, right? Anyways, terrible metaphor, terrible analogy. I'm, I'm sorry about that, people. I think we've covered the main outlines of what we want to get here. For some further reading that you should probably look into, for if you want to know a little bit more, suggestions would be Marx's Wage, Labor, and Capital, Engels's Principles of Communism, and as we mentioned before, and I personally have read this one quite a few times because it's really fascinating read is Rosa Luxemburg's Reformer Revolution. Actually, you should read quite a few of Rosa Luxemburg's works if you can, because the way she elaborates on communism is very different from both Lenin, from not even both, all three, Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. Like, her vein tends to go a little bit closer towards Trotsky, and a little bit with Lenin, like, seriously, she and Stalin did not get along at all. Yes, she knew who Stalin was, and Stalin knew who she was. They were all contemporaries, by the way. She died in 1919 during the Spartacist Uprising. Spartacist Uprising was basically a socialist uprising that happened just after World War I in the Weimar Republic. Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, I believe, the guy who was with her, Handling the whole Spartacus League, which was the revolutionary socialist group that she led, Rosa Luxemburg believed in a form of libertarian socialism, by the way. And knowing full well the revolution failed, she let the people go ahead with it anyways, because it was the will of the people, and she was very strong about that belief. And she died. In fact, there's a memorial in Germany to where she was thrown into a river. She, in fact, was there. Another couple of more of her works, aside from her former revolution, are Leninism or Marxism, really good one. The Maastricht, the political party in the trade union. That one, if you want to understand more of how the individual parts should interact within the proletarian revolution, at least for understanding communism, Marxism, and all that as a whole, is a really good read. Like, 
it, it, it's interesting. And then her, there's her analysis of the Russian Revolution, which is where we get some of her more famous quotes. In fact, there is a quote of hers we use very, very, very often. Hold on, let's see if we can't find it. No, I'm gonna be a better way instead of looking directly in the work. Let's just look online. Let's just look up quotes. Alright, hold on. Here we go. Freedom only for the members of the government, only for the members of party, though they are quite numerous, is no freedom at all. There's more to the quote as well. Which, let's see if we can't find the whole quote. Here we go. Freedom only for the members of the government, only for the members of the party, though they are quite numerous, is no freedom at all. Freedom is always the freedom of the one who thinks differently, not because of any factual, fanatical concept of justice, but because all that is instructive, wholesome, and purifying in political freedom depends on this essential characteristics. And when its effectiveness vanishes, when, quote, freedom becomes a special privilege, That's basically a good summation of how Rosa Luxemburg thought. She was a socialist revolutionary at heart. But to her, freedom was fundamentally important. If the people weren't free, then there was no true socialism in her mind. And that's kind of what is very important to note. Communism does not, communist ideology does not automatically denote authoritarianism. That's a very Stalinist thing. And Leninism does advocate for the idea of a vanguard class, but it's not a part of Orthodox Marxism. And that's where you get the huge branch off between more libertarian and more authoritarian communist ideologies. And kind of what led to a huge split within communism even in its early days. In fact, that's kind of why we had the second and a half international the third international and the common intern at one point. One was for more libertarian socialists and anarchists, one was for more of the authoritarians, and one was Stalin's political bloc that was being built out of the Soviet Union. And that's where all that came from. And if you made it to this point now, I appreciate you for listening and Give a little review on what we've been doing on the break here. We've actually been recruited recently to help with a campaign for a Lakewood City Council member, who is my dad actually, running for Lakewood City Council for the first time. We're running on a platform to basically work on property management, to more responsible property recompense and more 
equal property compensation and all that. It, it's it's a much more complicated issue in Colorado. We have to deal with a lot of property things and high property values that seem completely unwarranted. I'm sure you've seen some of the memes around where you can get like mansions in Indianapolis or Kansas City and stuff like that. And then in Colorado, you have to pay like 1.8 million for a really crappy house. A lot of that has to deal with property taxes and things like that. We're going to be working on something that kind of reforms on all that idea, gives proper recompense for those who have to give property up or something like that through eminent domain and things like that. And trying to find a balance between renters and landowners. And that's kind of where we're trying to get with our campaign so far. Anyways, if you happen to be in the Lakewood area of Colorado and live in Ward 2, I know hyper-specific as heck. On the incredibly off chance that that might be you, we would very much appreciate your support. Otherwise, if you happen to be a campaign or a candidate running for office and you have a platform you think we might agree with, feel free to send it to us at our Facebook or, coming soon, our website. We've actually recently got a URL and we're working on building one right now. And once we get that up and running, we very much would like it for all of you to come. We're going to try to have the podcast set up on there, set up a few other things, set up a Friday proposal, and we're planning on doing quite a bit with it, really. If you could help out, if you have any insight on what might be helpful for a website or anything like that, or you're a candidate looking for a possible endorsement from an incredibly obscure podcast, feel free to contact us currently through our Facebook. Later on, we'll hopefully have our website up and running for you. If you want to donate to us, we have a link for that too. I believe it is anchor.fm backslash Bobby B-A-H-B-I dot Barnett, if I remember correctly. I don't think I can look... No, I can't look it up right now, unfortunately. Hold on just a second, actually. No, we're not going to be able to look that right up right now, but I'm pretty sure it's anchor.fm backslash B-A-H-B-I Bobby dot Barnett B-A-R-N-E-T-T. If that's incorrect, we'll leave the correct one in the description for you. Have a wonderful day, and we hope that you'll see be with us on Friday for our Friday proposal and Wednesday for when we come back with the regular series Beyond the Ideology of the Month. And thank you for listening.